0: Our passage this morning comes from Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 50. As you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were too afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, this morning we're continuing our series through the Gospel of Mark, and you'll remember that we, we every once in a while will draw attention to the fact that the Gospel according to Mark can be broken up into basically two different parts, that the first half of the Gospel of Mark, chapters 1 through 8, are primarily focused on one question, who is Jesus? What is his identity? And you'll remember that the Apostle Peter declares right at the end of chapter 8 that Jesus is the Christ, that he's not just a prophet, he's not just a great teacher, he's not a political revolutionary, he is the Messiah. And now Mark is transitioning in the second part of the gospel to a second question. What has Jesus come to do? What is his mission? And so what we're going to see throughout the rest of the Gospel of Mark, and especially in this particular passage, is that Jesus turns toward Jerusalem and begins teaching his disciples clearly about what he is intending to do. We see right in the passage there that he teaches his disciples saying, "...the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise." And yet, all throughout this section of Mark, what you're going to see is that no matter how plainly Jesus teaches this aspect of his mission, the disciples do not understand it. And in our passage, it even kind of goes a little bit further and says they, in fact, were too afraid to ask Jesus for clarification as to what he meant. But why would the disciples be worried about asking Jesus for clarity on his mission? What did they have to lose? Well, I think one of the things that maybe they knew and that we know if we allow ourselves to wrestle with this is that if they properly understood who Jesus is and what he had come to do, that it would have a profound effect on what it meant for them to follow him. You see, for, for the disciples, Jesus at this time is really seen as a guarantee of religious and political victory that's where they were placing their hope. They knew that if Jesus was the Messiah, that that meant that God was going to use him to deliver them from the Romans and then establish the throne of Israel forever. And the reason we know this, even in this passage, is if you look at verses 33 and 34, notice the disciples have no issue debating and arguing with one another over which of them is the greatest And that phrase, which of them is the greatest, in essence, or I should say, maybe if we think about that in our terms as an American citizen, is essentially they're arguing who is going to be in the cabinet of Jesus' new administration when they get to Jerusalem. And so you can almost hear how this argument went, right? Peter, James, and John, who had just come down the mountain from the transfiguration, they're probably looking at that and thinking, well, that's very clear proof that we are special to Jesus and that we belong in his cabinet. Or maybe Judas Iscariot is holding the money bag because he functioned as their treasurer, and he's saying, well, I mean, let's be honest, guys. Jesus clearly trusts me the most because he gave me the money. And on and on and on. And you can almost sense that these disciples are beginning to argue and bicker and that division is rising among them. And I think Jesus can sense that too. And it concerns him deeply. And so what does Jesus do? He calls his disciples to, them, to himself and he says, why don't you explain yourself? What were you talking about on the road? And what do we see the disciples do? They revert back to silence. They know that something is amiss, but they are unwilling to face it. But Jesus, out of compassion for his disciples and love for them, will not let them stay in their ignorance or in their silence. Because he knows that those who follow him, his disciples, play a crucial role in what God is doing in the world. And that's why in verse 50, if you look there for a moment, you'll notice that Jesus, here and in other parts of the New Testament, refers to his disciples as salt. In Matthew, he says, you are the salt of the earth. In the ancient world, salt was highly valuable because it has a unique ability to preserve. Right? Practically speaking, salt delays the onset of decay and in this sense preserves Life. You can kind of understand how important that would be for their food in the ancient world. And so like salt, Jesus' disciples, we as the church, are called to be a preservative, to preserve not the culture of Israel, not the culture of America, but the culture of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is concerned because we look here in verse 50 and realize that salt can be rendered useless. If it is mixed with impurities, like the disciples and Jesus would have been aware of the salt from the Dead Sea being completely worthless to the needs of preservation. And so Jesus, seeing his disciples woefully divided and corrupted in all of these different ways, he sits down like a rabbi and takes the posture of one about to give a very important lesson. And he does this so that his disciples will listen well about what he is about to say. And we too need to listen carefully this morning. Because unless the impurities among us are eliminated, then we will be rendered useless as Jesus' disciples in the world. And so that is where we're headed this morning, is to look at what are these impurities that we may find among us as people in the world, and as disciples of Jesus? And how is Jesus going to help us eliminate these impurities so that we can be useful for the kingdom of God and for the sake of Christ? But before we go there, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you great thanks and praise for gathering us together as your people this morning. We thank you for this portion of your word that you have preserved for us so that we would not be ignorant, that we would not be led astray by the world's priorities, but that you would give us the hope and the wisdom that we need to know how to live faithfully as your disciples in the world. Cleanse us by the power of the gospel and your spirit so that we would be faithful as individuals and as a church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first thing that Jesus says is, we are going to be rendered useless as his disciples unless the impurity of selfish ambition is eliminated among us. I want you to look at verses 35 through 37. He says, It says, Jesus sat down calling the twelve and he said to them, if any one of you would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. I want you to notice in verse 35 that Jesus doesn't waste any time and immediately addresses the heart of their arguing with one another. And the heart of their arguing with one another is that they desire status and significance in the world. And we'd actually have trouble kind of wrapping our head around what Jesus is saying, not because we are less enamored with status or significance, but because we live in a different culture that is completely sold on the idea of equality. Whereas the Jews and the Romans of the first century were completely sold on the idea of hierarchy. Right? You had the emperor on top, you had wealthy landowners under him, You had tradesmen and common people, and then you had slaves and servants. And this is why it would have been profoundly jarring for the disciples to hear Jesus say, if anyone would be first in his kingdom, he must be last of all and servant of all. That literally makes no sense in their culture. Because what Jesus is saying here is that the one who is the most significant in the kingdom of God is the one who has given up all of their rights in order to serve others. You can kind of hear a glimmer of the gospel in there. Jesus is not giving us principles about how to be better leaders in the world here. Kind of a servant leadership 101. What Jesus is doing in this passage is he's showing how status and how significance actually work in the kingdom of God. And then he's proving to us that selfish ambition has no part of that aspect of God's kingdom. And so what are we going to do? What are we going to do as Jesus' disciples if we actually want to preserve the culture of the kingdom of God? And Jesus gives us two really awesome ways to move forward. He says, first, you need to embrace insignificance and that you need to serve the insignificant. Look at verse 36. Jesus took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said something to them. I want you to notice, again, verse 35, if you literally translate it, says, if anyone desires to be first, that same person will be last of all, and servant of all. And what I want you to notice is how Jesus is linking the desire for greatness in the kingdom of God with the embracing of insignificance. And I want you to draw attention to this illustration, this object lesson that Jesus is giving us, because he embraces a child, and this also would have been profoundly jarring to the disciples. Let me explain why. As Americans, we actually hold children in very high regard. We worship youth, and we find children to be very important in our culture and in our lives. That was not the case, especially among the Jews in the first century. Now, don't hear me saying that parents in the first century didn't care about their kids. They did, and there's lots of evidence throughout the New Testament of fathers caring for their sons and mothers caring for their daughters. But what's really important for us to understand is that in the first century, children had no social status at all. And you can actually hear this talked about by the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4. In Galatians 4, this is what Paul's argument is. As long as the heir is a child, they are no different from a slave. That's crazy. For American ears, that doesn't make any sense. But that would have made sense for a culture Dedicated to hierarchy and seeing children as having no social status, and yet Jesus embraces this child in their midst. Which means if we want to follow Jesus, we too need to give up our desire for greatness and risk losing power and influence by embracing insignificance. But Jesus goes even further. Because it's not just that we need to give up our own selfish ambitions, but that we actually need to give ourselves to serving the insignificant. If you look back at verses 36 and 37, Jesus continues, and after embracing the child says, Whoever receives one such child in my name, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. That word in the Greek that's translated receives, it means to show acts of hospitality and service to other people. And again, I want you to notice how Jesus is brilliantly linking these things together. He says, if you are serving an insignificant person among us, then you are actually serving Christ himself. And if you are actually serving Christ himself, you are serving God himself which means that if the opposite is true it goes something like this if we refuse to serve the insignificant among us then we are refusing to serve christ himself and if we refuse to serve christ himself we are not serving god that's heavy stuff And this exact teaching is echoed in the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. I encourage you later to go and read it if you're interested. But the reality is, Jesus knows that this will only happen if selfish ambition is eradicated from among his disciples. And perhaps no image is more important on this point for us to hold in our minds than that of Jesus washing the disciples' feet at the Last Supper. You remember in John chapter 13 that Jesus knelt down, took a basin, and washed the disciples' feet. Sounds strange to us in America, but in the first century, this was the first and the most lowly acts of hospitality. They were only, it was only done by servants and by slaves. And yet Jesus kneels and utters probably the most important words for us to hear on this point. You call me teacher, and you call me Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So what does this mean for us as Christians and as a church what well, means if we're going to bear witness to the kingdom of God, then we need to look to Jesus and we need to follow him. And just as Jesus embraced insignificance for our sake, we need to embrace insignificance for the sake of others. And just as Jesus served and welcomed us through the cross, we need to sacrificially serve and welcome those among us, especially those that might be considered the least significant in the eyes of the world. In fact, one might say that the best way to seek the kingdom of God is not to lobby in Washington for political power, but to humbly look for ways to serve others, especially those among us who are insignificant. That is a radical change in what it means to seek a kingdom. And we need to hear that from Jesus. And what's really funny is that John didn't hear this because right after Jesus finishes this lesson, John opens up his mouth and puts his foot right in it. I want you to look at verses 38 through 41. Look at John saying, Hey, teacher, Jesus. We saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. And you can almost hear kind of this like awkward pause where Jesus just looks at John and says, are you serious? Because Jesus recognizes not only are we going to be rendered useless by selfish ambition, but we're going to be rendered useless by factions among us. Because After John volunteers this story, Jesus looks at him and says, don't stop him. Perhaps John and the other disciples had just remembered that they were unable to cast out a demon. And they were looking to Jesus to kind of affirm them with a sense of value and a sense of significance. And so they go and they're looking for Jesus to say, well, thank you. Thank you for correcting that person and making sure that all of the power and all of the influence and all of the authority stays right here, John. That's exactly what I want. That's exactly where it belongs with just you, the 12 disciples. The problem is, is that nowhere in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, is there any indication that the 12 disciples were the only people that God used to cast out demons. And in fact, there are a lot of commentators writing on this passage that kind of argue that Jesus' response to John reveals that the one who's casting out demons is probably a genuine follower of Jesus. But here's what I want you to notice about John and the other disciples. They did this because they were jealous for their position in the kingdom of God. And they were so jealous for that position that they were willing to accuse and to attack another believer so that they could feel secure in their position and their status in the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul experienced something very similar in 1 Corinthians, and he writes to the church in Corinth, and he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, For it has been reported to me that there is quarreling among you. Each one says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter, and then the trump card, I follow Christ. What does Paul say? Is Christ divided? The answer is obvious. No. Jesus tells us that in John chapter 17 when he prays, Lord, I pray not only for those only, but those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. And despite all of this, we all recognize how easy it is to get caught up in factious thinking of dividing the church and finding our little camps to put our flags with and say, this is my type of Christian. This is what I identify with. Everybody else, unfaithful, everybody else needs to be stopped. And Jesus' response to John reveals something that I think is really helpful in understanding how we will go about eliminating factions among us. The first is that we need to seek to exalt Jesus above all else. I want you to look at verse 39. And I want you to notice Jesus emphasizing himself. This is such a cool way of Jesus responding. Instead of dwelling on the details of John's story, Jesus is shifting the conversation away from comparing the disciples and that unknown exorcist and focusing the subject on Jesus' power and authority. I want you to notice Jesus'. Is confidence in this passage. He says, when anyone does a mighty work in my name, that is with his authority backing them, then it is not the messenger who is receiving the glory. It is Jesus himself. Jesus knows that God's mission in the world is far greater than we could possibly imagine. I love the way the Apostle Paul, again, writes this in in Romans chapter 14. He simply says, Who are you to condemn someone else's servant? Their own master will judge whether they stand or fall. And with the Lord's help, they will stand and receive his approval. Guys, there is no competition in the kingdom of God. There is only a great confidence in God's ability to accomplish His mission by His means. The lesson is very clear. If we're going to avoid and eliminate factions, then we need to begin not by exalting our denomination, not by exalting Grace Church, not by exalting our ministries or even ourselves. We need to exalt Jesus as he is revealed in the gospel and leave the outcomes to him alone. But Jesus keeps going because he really wants his disciples to get this. But he says, not only should we seek to exalt him above all else, we should also seek to encourage others in the work that God has given to them. Look at verses 40 and 41. And this again is just a really brilliant way of Jesus responding to John. Because Jesus is brilliantly building a bridge between the disciples and the exorcists. Look in verse 40. He quotes a well-known proverb. He says, For the one who is not against us is for us. And all the disciples would have been very familiar with that proverb. And you'll notice that in that proverb, Jesus is carefully using the pronoun us. Not them, not you, not me, us. And then what he's doing is he's starting to describe the blessing of encouraging others simply because they are associated with Christ. He says, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And while I'm sure that the disciples were encouraged by this, they're like, yeah, that is nice to get You know, when we go into a town and they say, hey, you're one of Jesus' disciples. Oh, we're so glad you're here. Come in, put your feet up, rest a while. The disciples kind of recognize, like, that feels good when that happens. I like when that happens to me. Jesus is not telling them that so that they'll feel good about themselves. Jesus is telling them that so that they will be deeply encouraged to bless others with the same type of behavior. And it kind of reminds me of A really maybe lame joke, but I love telling this. So there's a man who at the end of his life enters the gates of heaven and he's met by the apostle Peter. And Peter looks at the man and he says, what denomination are you from? And the man's confused and he says, "Uh, Methodist, Peter. So Peter looks down at his list. He says, "Uh, okay, Uh, go through these gates, go down the hall and I want you to go to room 24 but be sure to be very quiet as you walk down and pass room 8. The man goes, okay, goes through the gates and on his way. The second man comes through the gates of heaven, and Peter says, well, what denomination are you? The guy goes, "Uh, Lutheran. Peter goes, "Uh, okay, you go through these gates and down the hall, and I want you to go to room 18. But hey, make sure you're quiet when you go by room 8. The guy goes, okay. Walks through. And finally, a third man arrives and comes up to Peter. And Peter says, what denomination are you? The man goes, uh, Baptist, actually, really proudly. The man goes, uh, Baptist. And Peter says, okay, I want you to go down this hall and go to room 11, but be quiet when you pass room 8. The man starts to walk through the gates. He turns around and he says, uh, I understand maybe why you have like, rooms for different denominations because it's nice to hang out with your own people. But why do we have to be quiet when we walk down past room eight. And Peter leans over and he whispers, that's because the Presbyterians are in there. They think they're the only ones here. (laughs) Might be a lame joke if you've heard it before, but it kind of captures, right? What should we do with what Jesus is saying to us, right? I think there's a couple of things that come to mind. First and foremost, you need to know why you're here at Grace. You need to know what you believe about the scriptures, about Jesus, You need to know your Bible. You need to know what it means to be Protestant. You need to know what it means to be Reformed and Presbyterian and a member of Grace Church. Not so that you can exalt Grace Church, but so that you can know what it means to be calling Grace your home. It also means that you should probably get involved in ways that we are actually trying to encourage other Christians all around the world. We saw the video of the Urbans, and there's Kingdom Prayer available this afternoon These are just simple ways to involve yourself in looking for those opportunities to encourage others and build them up in what God has called them to do. But I think maybe last but not least, just thinking about Rochester, is I would encourage you, Grace Church, to meet other Christians in our city that don't go to Grace Church. Look for ways to encourage them to dig deeper into their churches If their churches are gospel-centered, Bible-teaching churches, they should not be encouraged to do anything else but dig deeper into where God has them and what God is doing through them. And may it be that in Rochester, the testimony of Jesus' disciples is that they are not factious, but that they are profoundly unified in an era that is unbelievably marked by division and tribalism. Let us not be marked by tribalism, but let us be marked by actually following Jesus. And yet, this is not the last thing that Jesus has to say. Because even if we exalt Jesus above all else, and we encourage others in the work that God has for them, we will still be rendered useless if we do not pay particular attention to Jesus' final point. I want you to look in verses 42-42. 49. This is the bulk of what Jesus has to say. Because we will be rendered useless as Jesus's disciples unless the impurity of sin and scandals are eliminated from us. I want to read it just in total so you can hear Jesus speaking without any commentary. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. It is not an overstatement to say that Jesus reserves some of his strongest and most graphic language for this passage. Because in the eyes of Jesus, there is nothing more contaminating and compromising to the body of Christ than sin. I want you to notice, however, that the most significant thing about this passage is that in the Greek, the word sin is actually not there. Because the Greek word for sin, amartia, is more about a concept of sin. Sin. And instead, what Jesus does is he uses a Greek word that is actually translated, cause one to sin, that we get the English word, scandalize. That is a much better picture of what Jesus is concerned about in this passage. What he's concerned about is not so much that we think about sin as a concept and what it is and what its details are, but rather in this passage, Jesus wants to paint a graphic picture of about sin's shameful and destructive effects among God's people. Jesus is not really worried about your ability to think abstractly about sin. He wants you to act passionately and decisively against your flesh in order to protect yourself and the body of Christ from God's judgment. And from the awful effects that that has on our ability to testify to Jesus and his kingdom. I want you to look here in verse 42. And notice Jesus' focus being first and foremost on protecting the body of Christ. He draws our attention back to the child that he put in their midst. And he uses that child as a metaphor for fellow Christians, especially those among us who are powerless and who are vulnerable. And I want you to notice how serious Jesus condemns sin against the vulnerable and the weak. Jesus describes what is, in effect, a horrifying way to die to have a millstone wrapped around your neck and thrown into the sea. That is stuff the mafia does. And Jesus is saying, that that judgment would be less severe than what that person actually deserves. That is really important to sit on. Because while this is shocking, it is also something to bring us great comfort. Jesus is passionate about protecting his people. And he is especially passionate about protecting those among us who are the most vulnerable. Which means that if we want to be followers of Jesus, we too should be passionate about protecting the body of Christ, even from ourselves. And that's where Jesus goes next. In verses 43-49, through 49, I want you to notice here, as, as Jesus is shifting kind of away from describing our, our sinful effects on others, to describing sin's effect on us personally. And as he does that, he brings into the picture the reality of hell. Now, just to take a minute on this. The word hell, that's translated hell, is the Greek word Gehenna. Okay, And literally, Gehenna was a valley on the south end of the city of Jerusalem, that in the Old Testament times was used as a place for human sacrifice so that the, gods of, the Canaanite gods of Boloch and Baal would get their due. And by the time of Jesus, Israel had turned Gehenna, this valley known for awful, horrible things, uh, sinful acts, had turned it into a garbage dump. And in that garbage dump, they piled out the garbage and they lit it on fire continuously. And so... Gehenna began to be used among the first century Jews as kind of this symbolic picture of the place of God's judgment. But what's really important for us to understand is that while the word Gehenna or the idea of hell is somewhat symbolic in the Bible, the reality of eternal separation from God and his never-ending wrath for sinners is very real. And the reason we know this is because of how Jesus is talking about it. Even though he's using symbolic language, he has in view real consequences for sin. Because the reason that Jesus is talking so graphically about hell is not so that we could study it to know more about hell. He's describing it so that we would be able to contrast in our minds the difference between the eternal pain of God's wrath and the temporary pain of rejecting our sin. I think the contrast is especially showcased in verse 49 where Jesus says everyone will be salted with fire. Kind of confusing, but what Jesus is doing here is he's kind of doing a play on words. On the one hand, Jesus is pointing back to the fires of hell that he just described. And on the other hand, he's pointing the disciples to the fact that sacrifices at the temple were what you might say salted in order to be purified and made acceptable in God's sight. And so what Jesus is saying here is that either... We will be purified by the temporary fire of confession and repentance, or we will be forever assaulted by the fires of God's wrath. And so, Jesus, in the face of these consequences, describes what, in very many ways, is a horrific remedy. If your hand causes you to sin, amputate it. If your foot causes you to sin, lob it off. If your eye causes you to sin, grab it and tear it out of your head. That is very intense language. Now we know that Jesus doesn't mean this literally because that would actually violate the law of God. And second, not only was it forbidden, but if we were actually to embrace this policy as a way to address our sin, it would be suicide. Because if we actually tried to address our sin in all of the different ways that it kind of portrays itself, what would we discover is that there's none of us left. Because sin doesn't originate in your hand. Sin doesn't originate in your foot or in your eye. It originates in your heart. And Jesus knows that. And, and in fact, when you recognize that, that you are not a good person who does bad things, but a sinner who out of the outflow of your heart is just acting in your nature against God and against others, when you recognize that, Jesus' teaching about hands and feet and eyes is actually less intense than what is actually true about us. Because if we were to take Jesus' actual teaching, or the reality to effect, we would have to say, how do I address sin? I have to die. Because all of me is a sinner. You can hear the glimmer of the gospel in this. But perhaps the reason that we struggle to take Jesus' urgency in this passage seriously isn't because preachers like me have told you Jesus doesn't mean that literally, but because you and I don't take our sin as seriously as we ought to. Because oftentimes we approach sin the way most of us approach a common cold. It might not keep you from work, you might feel crummy for a little bit about the effects it's having in your life, but it's not that big of a deal. You'll get over it and you'll be feeling fine just a little bit of time and it'll all go back to normal. But what if you had symptoms of the common cold and you went to the doctor? And after a few tests, they discovered that it wasn't actually a common cold, but it was the fact that your immune system had been compromised because you have a horrible cancer riddled throughout your body what would you do? Well, you would listen intently to what the doctor has to say next. You would listen intently if that doctor said, you know what, the cancer is in your brain. We need to do brain surgery. The cancer is in your blood. We need to do chemotherapy. The cancer is in your, you name it. We don't have to think about this example too far because people make these decisions all the time. When faced with that type of a dire situation people are willing to do these meaningful remedies. And that's what Jesus is getting at. I think John Owen said it most succinctly. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. So what do we do with all that heaviness? What do we do with all that bad news of the gospel? Well, I think that it should actually lead us to deeper gratitude for Christ's mission. Don't forget where this conversation started. In verses 30 and 31, Jesus sits his disciples down and says, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise, implying rise from the dead. And then when he has risen, he has given his Holy Spirit to his people. Not only so that they would be free from the penalty of sin, but that they would be free from sin's power in their life. The Apostle Paul writes it like this in Galatians. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, and they are opposed to each other. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. This, this graphic teaching of Jesus is meant to point us to the cross so that we could behold the one who actually had his hand cut off for your sin. His foot cut off for your sin. His eye gouged out. His death for your life. That is what Jesus is getting at. Because ultimately, what we find in this passage is that if we're going to eliminate selfish ambition, if we're going to eliminate factions among us, and if we're going to address sin and scandal among us, it's not going to be through us. It's not going to begin with our goodwill. Instead, we need to pray that God would give us courage to look to Jesus, to deepen our understanding of the cross and his mission so that we would have salt in ourselves and that we would be at peace with one another. Last passage of scripture I want to read for you guys. This whole section of Mark is summed up by the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. Brothers, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Holy Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Look, each of you, not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and even under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is how we will be useful For the sake of Christ's kingdom and as Christ's disciples. As we eliminate selfish ambition and serve the insignificant. As we eliminate factions by exalting Jesus and encouraging others. And especially as we give ourselves to the task of protecting the body of Christ, even from ourselves, by confessing we are sinners. And that we need salvation each and every day. The salvation that Jesus gladly gave us on the cross. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for all that you have given for the sake of your people. Move in our hearts by your spirit, Lord Jesus. So that we would seek your kingdom and not our own that we would follow your ways and not our own, and that we would take seriously what you have accomplished for us, and that your work of sanctification, no matter how painful, Lord Jesus, would bear the fruit of your spirit in our lives so that our joy would be complete and that you would be glorified. Unify us, Lord, in this country. And may it be that as people look to us, your people in this age, They would see us faithfully following you and clinging to you above all else. And it's in Jesus' name that we do pray. Amen.